Will you say the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated and let's, uh, let's pray. O Lord, as uh, the psalmist has cried out, we say, How long, O Lord? We recognize the pain and suffering in the world around us, and we ask, How long, O Lord? We see injustices done and oppressions brought on peoples, and we say, How long, O Lord? Father, we look at the condition of our own hearts and our own choices and actions and the ways that we fail to love you and to love one another. And we say, how long, O Lord? Yet, Father, you have offered us this this forum that we can come and bring our requests to you, knowing that our prayers are effective. That through the prayers of your people, you accomplish your purposes. And so we pray for those who are in places of hurt and suffering that you will bring comfort and healing. We pray for those who are in your church who are suffering persecution around the world that you would give them steadfastness and endurance to continue to faithfully trust your promises and to depend on your graces and your mercies even in the face of great difficulty. Father, we pray for the mission of your gospel. And we ask that as your ambassadors, you would make us effective witnesses for the work that Jesus has done in our lives, for the work that you have done in others' lives through the transforming power of the gospel. Father, we pray for those who are in positions of authority in our city, in our state, and in our nation, and even this whole world that is yours, for we know that every one of them is under your authority and has been placed there by your sovereign control. Whether they do your will or not, they are still accomplishing your purposes. Father, will you equip them and teach them to follow your will, to be good stewards of the things you have entrusted to them, to care for those who need to be cared for and who have put them in positions of power by their votes, and also to defend the people with righteousness and justice against enemies, oppressors, Father, we pray for your church, that the purposes of your church, the building up of your church, would not be thwarted, but would be advanced, even in this time, especially in this time of coronavirus, where the churches are at a fraction of capacity, 
where many have grown unaccustomed to attending worship even online. Will you remind us of the sweet satisfaction that comes from fellowship, from Christian community, and the necessity of the teaching of your word, the reading of your word, the singing of your praises, the meeting of your church. Father, we thank you for your many provisions. We thank you for this place. We ask that your spirit would continue to guide us and provide for us here. And we ask all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let me invite uh, Alec to come up and read our scripture text for today. Thank you for being here with us, Alec. All right, today's reading comes from uh, Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he named, called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out from the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Well, that may seem like a strange place to uh, stop the reading. God is just getting going with his, uh, his speech to Moses. But it seemed like as I was preparing for this teaching on chapter 2 or the second half of chapter 2, that it was an even more unnatural ending at the end of chapter 2. Because all of chapter 2 is, is so fascinating, it's, it's leading up to this great encounter that Moses 
has with God in this burning bush that's not consumed. The rest of the story is probably familiar to a lot of people, but he goes on to reveal, God goes on to reveal a number of things about himself. He says, I know their pain. He says, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to deliver you from your people, Israel, from slavery to a land flowing with milk and honey. He goes on to tell Moses said he's going to send him to Pharaoh and even reveals his own name, something God hasn't done before up to this point, and that is, I am who I am, or the, the name Yahweh that we're, many of us are familiar with. But that's the sermon for next week, and this week we're going to look at how chapter 2 prepares, sets the course for Moses and God to interact with one another in this powerful way where Moses is called to lead his people in delivering them from slavery in Egypt and delivering them to a freedom. Now we've talked about why we're studying Exodus and it's helpful to go back and remember these these reasons. The two primary reasons that I want us to focus on on why we're studying Exodus. And that is that The first one is that God's physical rescuing his people from this slavery in Egypt is is a central and a necessary analogical comparison to what God does with us when he rescues and saves us out of sin and death. And yet the exodus for many of us, especially many of us who find ourselves living in very comfortable conditions is a very foreign story that we may be familiar with, but it doesn't really affect us emotionally that deeply. And when we fail to see how that story of redemption, of, of rescuing, of, of deliverance that God does for us out of our, our, our state of sin and death, and it doesn't have an emotional effect on us, It's impossible for us to really experience the life of faith, the life of trust, and the life of hope that God calls us to in the Christian life. So hopefully by studying and looking at this story of deliverance from slavery and into this other thing, we'll we'll experience a deeper sense of emotion for the salvation that God has given to us. The second reason that we're looking at the book of Exodus, we talked about last week, is that Exodus... It's a strange book in that it begins with this epic story of deliverance in the first few chapters. And then we find the people in Mount Sinai with some, some strange interactions with, with Moses, but uh, uh, where they're experiencing this great deliverance, but, but not the faith that you would expect them to have after this. But then the book of Exodus goes into this detailed explanation of what their worship should look like. And the reason that Exodus does this, the reason that we're, we're shown this in Exodus is that, is that we're a people made to worship. And when most of us think about freedom, we think about release from any kind of responsibility or accountability. But the people of Israel experience this new freedom and they're challenged immediately of wanting to go back to worship the things they left, 
are wanting to worship in some new way. And God is saying, no, if you don't worship in the way that I've instructed you to, if you don't worship God, then you will worship something else. And so Exodus reminds us that our freedom is a freedom to worship. And the call of Exodus is to worship the God who does the rescuing. When God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he opens them by saying, I am the God who brought you out of the land of slavery, of bondage, of Egypt, and delivered you to this, to give context to the instructions that he's about to give. So you look at Exodus to find this emotional connection to the salvation God has won, and also to be reminded that we worship something. And as we do this, it's helpful to remember to think about what are the things in our lives that we worship most? What are the things, if they were gone today, we would be devastated by? The story of Exodus that we read today has two life-changing, dramatic encounters for Moses. And in both cases... Moses loses something dear to his heart, significant in his life. And the stories show us Moses in some ways as a hero, but if we just left off at the end of Exodus 2, we might come away thinking that Moses is the hero and not see God as the hero because it's really the encounter between Moses and and God in Exodus 3 that draws our attention to the work that God does and not the work that Moses does. So here's the three ways I roughly want to break this down today. And that is, the, the first thing is the preparation that God gives to Moses in chapter 2 when he's, when he's in the, the wilderness but not just the wilderness. We'll look back a little bit. The second thing is the disrupting event that comes in the form of this burning bush when God confronts Moses. And then third is to look at just the introduction of the interaction between them. Because what God says immediately when he says, take off your sandals, the place you're standing is holy ground, introduces the most important concept in all of the Bible on how God relates to his people. That is that God is holy and we are not. Even Moses. Now Moses, Moses is a pretty phenomenal guy. The story of Moses' birth begins with God delivering him and bringing him out of the waters of, of the Nile and into Pharaoh's house we've looked at. Moses lives in the palace of the king of Egypt for the first 40 years of his life. Except the first three where he's raised by his his mother and, and nursed by his mother, two or three. For 40 years, Moses rises perhaps to one of the most powerful positions in all of Egypt. Some have even suggested that he was potentially in the line of succession to be a pharaoh, assuming that some should die or something because he was in the household of Pharaoh and and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. 
Moses, like many of us, and especially in the city of San Diego, in a place where successful people come to live and work, had the best education, the best military training, the best of all of life, and yet, and yet that seems to be insufficient training for the work that God is calling him to do. Now, the incident of Moses confronting this, uh, this Egyptian man who's, who's doing uh, harm or, or beating one of his, his fellow Hebrew, Hebrew uh, brothers is not given in much detail in the story that we read. In fact, if we didn't have two particular sections of the, uh, of the New Testament, one in Acts 7, one in Hebrews 11, we wouldn't know much about this. It's hard to say whether Moses was doing something right or wrong. It's hard to even say if Moses, when he looked around, was looking for somebody else who might step in and do something about this injustice, or if he was looking around to see if anybody would see him if he struck down this man and killed him. We don't even know if he killed him intentionally or not intentionally. In fact, in the position that Moses was in, we have to assume that he had authority to take other people's lives in that time and place in Egypt. And so it's curious even still more why he had to go on the run and why Pharaoh would come after him and want to kill him. But the text does tell us that Pharaoh is enraged by his action and he has to go off. Now the question remains, why did Moses do this in the first place? And why do I even say that this was after 40 years? It's because if you turn to Acts chapter 7, and you can turn over there if you want to. We're going to look at it for just a minute. We get a little bit more of a, of a background on what Moses did and, and why he did it. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 tells us that Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and his deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Doesn't tell us any more. Had he been a regular visitor? It sounds like not. And yet he was still familiar with the fact that he was born as a Hebrew. He probably knew even that uh, he was nursed in a home nearby. But did he have interaction with them throughout the time? We don't know. But he has compassion for these people. He sees that they're being oppressed and he goes out to look in a very similar way to the way God says at the end of the chapter, I've heard their groaning. I know that they're being oppressed. Moses is in alignment with God's heart. And it says in verse 25 in Acts 7, something we don't even get a glimpse into in the story from Exodus, that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Now, where did Moses have this sense of call that he would be the deliverer of his people? Was it simply by knowing that he was a Hebrew and knowing that his position came with certain responsibilities? Maybe. Was it that he looked out and he saw this oppression for the first time in his life, going out and seeing just how harsh this was, and his heart was turned 
Maybe. There are a lot of things in the story we still don't know, but we do know that he expected to do this thing for the benefit of other people and for God, but there was one big problem in his choices and his expectations. That was in his timing. And his timing was not God's timing. Moses' timing was not God's timing. Now, I think this is a point that many of us can identify with. You see, Moses had been prepared with the best schools and the best tutors and the best family and the best everything. Food, physical conditioning. But there was one significant thing that he lacked. And that was a humility accompanied by a faith in the God who was the one who could truly deliver the people from Israel. In the book of Acts, it says he supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He had some knowledge that God was the one who would do this, but he didn't see it clearly. Reviewing some materials, I was reminded by a mentor of mine, Dick Kaufman, who was pastor here in San Diego, preached on this passage, he, he, he reminded of the difference between education and experience, and he described the difference of, between education and experience as this. Education is reading the large print. Experience is forgetting to read the small print. Moses saw the large print. He pointed out that he would be the person who would deliver his people from slavery. But he missed the small print that included after 40 years of taking you and putting you in a humble place where you would be a shepherd. It turns out shepherding is pretty good preparation for ruling as we find with King David. It turns out A humble position is oftentimes far more formative than the best educations we can get in life. Now, we shouldn't write off that great education because surely God used the education that Moses got in the palace to bring organization to this many people, But we'll find out pretty soon that Moses responds to God when he calls him, not with an eager, I've been waiting 40 years for this call. Why have you waited so long? But rather a concern that he wasn't all that eloquent of speech. Turns out the Apostle Paul has the same problem. He says he's not all that eloquent of speech, and yet he is the most effective church planter probably in all of history. There are many things that form us into the people God wants us to be in order to do the things that he has called us to do. The same pastor and mentor, Dick Hoffman, preached this sermon, not titling it, but referring to it over and over as Moses' time in, in a hockey penalty box. 
and he helpfully points out that sometimes people get put in the hockey penalty box because of something that they did wrong and they are sitting on the sideline waiting, waiting, watching to get into the game and then they burst through the, the door when the get door finally is opened for them. But some of the time, it's the person who throws the second punch, the retaliatory thing that gets put in the penalty box oftentimes. And we really don't know which of those this is within the case of, of Moses. Is he sent into the wilderness because he did something wrong or because he got caught doing something right? Was this other person that the, the person was striking about to die himself? Was Moses justified in his act in taking this justice? Again, many things that we don't know, but we do see Moses out there in the wilderness learning from his time of being a shepherd the things that are necessary before he can effectively lead the people of God to their freedom. I mean, just pause and encourage all of us to think about the things that are disappointments in life. The places where we may seem like we're not being used to our fullest extent. The things God uses to humble us, to quiet us, but then also stretch our thinking a little bit even more to say that there's no indication that Moses particularly hated his life as a shepherd and being married with these two sons now. In fact, Moses seems to be pretty content with his life. He goes and he sees this bush and that's where we're going next and he turns aside because it's a phenomenon that he's never seen before. He's seen bushes on fire, but he's never seen one that's not consumed by the fire, that just keeps burning. It's a curious thing. Moses might not have even had any reason to be seeking after God's renewed or reaffirmed call in his life to go and do something for God. And I think... I think that that describes Moses' life more than those who say that he was just bored tending sheep. I think Moses had found a pretty comfortable existence. He had lived the palace life. He knew what that was, and now he was fine doing something else. And here's the second point. And one that needs to sink into us. And whether you're here as a Christian and following God or as somebody who is just listening to the sermon, maybe online or just listening here in the park, and maybe you don't know God. And that is the disrupting events, the necessity of the disrupting events in our lives to truly bring us to an encounter with God that brings transformation because the problem that most of us face in life is that we're pretty comfortable and even if we're not comfortable in our pain or in our lack of resources or in our lack of satisfaction with our job we've figured out how to be comfortable enough that we're not going to let other things disrupt or interfere with our lives See, that's the great problem of our existence today is that few things truly come in and interrupt our lives until something great happens, like a significant health issue 
or a marriage that's crumbling to the ground, or the loss of a job, or something else that's really significant. But there's a necessity that we need to see with the encounter of the burning bush that each of us has not just the opportunity, but a necessity to experience in our lives. Something has to come in and confront us and change us and knock us off course. All of us know what this is like right now with coronavirus, and perhaps the last few months have brought the type of significant disrupting event in your life that now you're here asking some of these questions, who is this God? What does he do? And if that's the place where, where you're at, don't ignore it. Don't think I can just pass by and there'll be another burning bush a few miles down the road. The significance of this burning bush for Moses is very unique and it doesn't happen often in his life. It happens at the age of 40 when he kills the Egyptian and then he has to flee for his life and then it happens at the age of 80. Again, we find this from Acts 11, all the ages in particular that he's 40 years and then 40 years and then another 40 years after that, he's leading the people in the wilderness and, and, uh, and, and before they enter into the promised land. So he lives to 120. But these events are not frequent in Moses's life and we need to understand that they are not necessarily gonna be frequent in our lives. I'll tell you a story of my own life where I grew up in a home that was kind of an all-American type home and I played all kinds of sports and participated in the band and the, and the debate team and, and all was the, 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 the straight-A student. And yet it wasn't until I went to college and experienced freedom for the first time that I joined the college crew team I was working out hard every day for that in the best shape of my life. But the college crew team was also the college drinking club. And so in this freedom, I was faced with the reality that I was a sinner for the first time in my life that I had never experienced before. I had heard the gospel. I knew what the story of salvation was, that we all are sinners and we need salvation from God. We need to be delivered from something to something else. But it never dawned on me that I was actually in this state of slavery because I didn't experience any consequences for my sin. I didn't see a necessity to be delivered just like so many of us. And so at home, on the Thanksgiving break of that first semester of freshman year, late at night, I faced the reality that I was a sinner and needed the salvation of God in a way that I had never experienced before. And it was a disrupting experience that was necessary for my understanding of the gospel that I needed somebody to save me. As you pick up, even in this brief story that the, st the subject of salvation comes up a few times, 
God recognizes his people's cry for salvation. Moses sees his people suffering and he knows he needs to do something or he should do something to deliver them even if his timing is off. And even when Moses comes to the well and these seven daughters of this uh, this this priest of Midian whose name is given as Ruel and then uh, and then um, and then as uh, oh, what's his name I just uh, drew, drew a blank on it. it's given as a, a different name uh, in chapter in three Jethro no need to be concerned about the two different names because oftentimes people are given two different names and the, t- the second one is probably more of a title than a than a name but even there, as Moses is at the well with these seven women, it says that they, he saved them. He delivered them from the abuse of other poorly behaved shepherds in the area. The topic of salvation is over and over through this story, and, and it directs our attention on our, to, to the necessity of our salvation and the necessity of a type of disrupting event that can come in our lives. Now, don't think that the only things that disrupt our lives are significant life events or crises or the particular conviction of sin after a time of, of, of something that we've done more wrong than ever before. Those are certainly opportunities for the disruption. Disruptions can also come in reading new things in reading the scriptures for the first time or reading some other type of book where, where some something new is presented to us. Disruptions can also come just in the quietness of life in taking some time off and being realizing there's more to this than ever before. There continues to be an openness to a spiritual exploration in our culture today, even as Christianity is is cast off and written off as being oppressive in and of itself, there's an openness to spirituality that is is commendable. But that brings us to our third point, and that is the question, what is the real God? Who is the real God? Because many of us come to God with an expectation like we do to our jobs or to a spouse or a potential spouse or to so many other relationships asking, is this a God who will meet my deepest needs? And so we make some type of list. Some of us are very organized and we make this list on paper. Some of us just have this list in our head of the things that we want God to do and to be. Now, if you do this with a spouse, it doesn't take you long to figure out that your marriage is off to a bad start. Because there's no spouse that's going to meet all of our needs. But even more dangerous than doing this with a spouse or even a job is if we do this with God, we're going to quickly find that the God that we constructed in our mind does not actually exist. And you see, just like the reality of marrying a real person who's not going to meet all of those expectations on your list, the real God is not going to make all those expectations meet all those expectations on your list either. And so then the even bigger question is, what do I do with that? 
There's one of two paths you can take when that God doesn't meet all of your needs. You can either say, well, then, then God must not exist. Or you can say, my understanding of who God is must be, at least might be, a little bit off from the reality of who God really is. Now, if you go forward in the story of Moses to Numbers 12, verse 3, you come to an interesting verse. Moses is the writer of these, and so it's kind of uh, ironic. But we know that the scriptures are not true because Moses wrote them. The scriptures are true because God has affirmed that they are true. And Moses says, I'm going to make you hang on this until the plane goes. Anybody know what Moses said? You know what Moses wrote in Numbers 12, 3? He says, and Moses was the most humble man in all of the earth. Now we chuckle about Moses writing that about himself, but this is God. The scriptures say that the scriptures were written, prophets spoke not by the people on their own act, but by the Holy Spirit speaking through them truth. And so we understand that now Moses being the leader who he is, is the most humble man in all of the earth because he's encountered the real God. You know, that simple story of him striking down the Egyptian tells us that that was Moses acting on his plans. But now later in his life, Moses understands that he's being called by God. doesn't mean he's perfect. Moses gets frustrated. Moses has his failings even when they're in the wilderness. But Moses has a new humility because he's encountered the real God, not the God of his crafting. This, by the way, is the the definition of idolatry. It's the definition of idols. It's spoken of multiple times in the scriptures, many, many times of the propensity we have to try to create God in our own image, to create and carve, not necessarily one that looks like us, but one that looks like what we want God to look like. But what happens when Moses gets face to face with God? Their two paths are prepared through chapter two, and we see the path of Moses leading back to God and the path of God hearing his people crying out in the wilderness with the true plan and coming to, to hear and to respond to them. And, and, and God calls Moses. And he says in this double name, Moses, Moses. And if you're familiar with Hebrew uh, language and and the, the, the reasons for doing that, it's meant to communicate both an intensity and an intimacy. The repetition says, Moses, Moses, Moses hears that from the bush, not knowing who it is yet. And he hears this intensity and this intimacy. And he goes forward, but God says, stop. With this intimate invitation to him, God says, stop, there's a problem. He says, take off your sandals. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's the first time in the story of the Pentateuch from Genesis up till now that God presents this topic in this much clarity that God is a holy God and that Moses, 
like all of us, are an unholy people, and there has to be something that's done to reconcile the two. And the symbol of taking off your sandals is a start, but there's something so much more needed. And this points us, it points us to the truth of what Moses was experiencing right then and how he was coming to faith in the angel of the Lord that was in that bush that most likely is the second person of the Trinity, that is Jesus Christ. And I'll talk about that more next week. We're going to revisit this whole burning bush and read the rest of it next week. That Moses is approaching this bush and even then is understanding that he needs something outside of himself for this salvation. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 is going through a whole list of people who by faith chose to walk trusting God and not by what they saw or what they had or what they possessed. And he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And this, this is fascinating. Moses is living uh, over a thousand years before the time of Christ's birth. And yet this is what it says in verse 26, that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses was looking to the salvation of God that would become through Christ. Now, now he didn't know the name Christ at that time. But he was looking forward to the salvation that God was going to bring. And here's the picture I want to leave us with today of a holy God interacting with an unholy people and why this is so significant. The bush is burning, yet it's not consumed. What does a holy God do when it comes in touch with unholy things, unholy people? And so much of the Old Testament is designed to show us this it consumes it. It describes God as a consuming fire. And we think, well, that's the God that we don't want to have anything to do with. But the God, the consuming fire is also a purifying fire, burning off the dross, burning off the impurity, burning off the sinful effects of the world around us and the sin itself, and even the death that comes through sin and purifying making something whole. And that bush that's not consumed is a picture that we're meant to take home with us, that we, when the Holy God comes and lives in us, are now not consumed by His holiness. We don't burn up in the fire like the bush. God gives us this picture that His Holy Spirit comes and lives in us to equip us, to empower us to certain things. And we're talking about this in our Acts study on mission right now, that God comes and fills us with His Holy Spirit. The Holy God fills us with a, His Holy Spirit to accomplish certain purposes in and through us. And if we were unholy, it would consume us. But God has given us a holiness so that it wouldn't consume us. God has given us this fire inside of ourselves and it doesn't consume us. 
And that is because Jesus has taken our sin and paid the penalty for that on the cross and taken his righteousness and given it to us in exchange so that we can be called holy. Now in that is a whole wealth of riches, but I wanna draw us back to the summary of just today's message. And that is that if we don't have that disrupting event, we oftentimes don't come to the necessity of needing that reconciliation with God. That oftentimes as Christians, we feel like we're in the wrong place, or sometimes we get really comfortable in the right place. And we need to be aware of the disrupting events that can come in our lives, but also the important preparation God is doing in our lives in and through those times. It's not a waste. It's accomplishing a purpose. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. The writer of Hebrews remem- remembers the people of Israel were like that. Where they had been freed from slavery. They were, they were in the wilderness. They're not slaves anymore, but it says they hardened their hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts, but know that God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is at work in you and is calling you. But when you see the real God, the holy God, the actual God, it will consume you one way or the other. Either he will consume your whole life and deliver you to a place where you can truly worship him, or it will consume you with everything else of life. The cares of life, the pleasures of life, all of those symbols that Egypt represented will be consumed one day. And we're faced with the question, will we respond and turn aside to go see that burning bush? Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, we sang earlier today, for God, you are not a God to be trifled with. We don't come and tame you. But you are the God who makes us and calls us, who has chosen to use us in your purposes and to love us that we would be called children of God and given freedom to worship you. Father, would you help us to see the times of preparation in our lives? Will you help us to see the times where we may be caught up in the mundane, the routine of life and not heeding and listening for your voice? Will you remind us that you are a consuming fire burning off the dross in our lives? And that you are faithful to do your things, accomplish your purposes in our lives. Father, we thank you for this truth, this great story, and we pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.